Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. The CDC says nearly four out of 10 adolescents in the U.S. have yet to receive one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. In most states, Connecticut included, minors need parental consent before receiving a vaccine. But in a public health crisis, should adolescents be able to make their own decision about the vaccine? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Today we hear from researchers and a local pediatrician about the vaccine debate. And later, how are teens in Connecticut talking about the COVID-19 vaccine with their peers? We learn about a program at Stanford Health. Joining us first are two researchers who've published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine titled, Adolescents, Parents, and COVID-19 Vaccination, Who Should Decide? On Zoom with us, Dr. Holly Taylor, member of the faculty at the Department of Bioethics at the Clinical Center at the National Institutes of Health. Holly, welcome to our show. Thank you. Also with us is Susanna McGrew, who's a fellow in the NIH's Department of Bioethics. Susanna, welcome to where we live. Thank you. So Holly, I'll start with you. Before we talk about the the COVID-19 vaccine specifically, uh, remind us what decisions teens can make without parental consent. Yeah, sure. Happy to share that. Um, One point to make is that this is usually dictated by individual states. So I can tell you generally what adolescents are allowed to um, provide consent for, and in some cases, the age at which it can happen or the different options that adolescents have. But generally, adolescents have the opportunity to self-consent to treatment for substance use, mental health disorders, sexually transmitted diseases, and in some cases, contraception and abortion. And then in a few cases, adolescents are also able to consent for prevention uh, when there is a public health crisis or communicable disease that is reportable, Uh, but that's the minority of states. I know uh, here in Connecticut, uh, because of uh, data shared with us from the Centers for Child Advocacy uh, in Connecticut, teens can consent to STI diagnosis and treatment, also HIV prevention, and anything related to reproductive health, mental health treatment, but not medication. Um, so mm-hmm. I thought that was yeah. good to, to clarify. Uh, when uh, we talk about some of these exceptions uh, that um, do exist, uh, I'm wondering, Holly, you know, when did this come about where adolescents lessons were able to make decisions in some areas of health in their lives? Well, uh, from an ethical perspective, right, on one hand, you have an adolescent who is in a position of a diagnosis, perhaps, or a situation that has clear personal implications, and in some case, public health implications. And because they may have a concern about disclosing 
this information to their parents. The many states have allowed for these exceptions. The alternative being, right, that those adolescents may choose not to seek treatment and that could have dire consequences for them. So in most cases, it's for their individual benefit. And then in a couple cases, it's also related to the public public's health, right? So with a sexually transmitted infection, for example, you wanna encourage the adolescent to get diagnosed and treated so that he or she uh, does not spread that infection beyond, you know, after they, once they're cured, they can no longer spread it. So let's talk about vaccinations. Uh, Susanna, uh, remind us the context of why parents legally have control over vaccinations of their adolescent children. Uh, Well, parents legally have control over a lot of decisions that their children make. So pretty much every, I mean, children when they're young don't decide where they're going to go to school, what religion they're going to be brought up in, what they're going to eat for dinner for the most part. Um, So parents kind of, as a general um, right, make decisions for their children for all sorts of things. And medical decisions are just one of those categories of decisions that parents generally have the right to make on behalf of their children. Um, That's largely because young people aren't considered competent enough to make responsible decisions for themselves. And their parents are considered to be acting in their children's best interests. The few examples that Holly just mentioned that you mentioned earlier about mental health, substance abuse, STIs, things like that. um, Those are examples of cases where um, adolescents and parents might not see eye to eye or adolescents might have trouble bringing up those topics with their parents. And it might be in the adolescent's best interests to um, receive treatment without necessarily going through parents in the first place. Holly, in your research, uh, this paper, again, that was published, uh, when we think about the conversations that teens are having with their families, as uh, Susanna just referenced, you know, that relates also now to the the COVID-19 vaccine. Yeah. And I'll say that, you know, Susanna and I certainly think that the best option here is for families to have informed, thoughtful decisions about all sorts of topics, including all the ones that we've been talking about. But um, it does put in in the circumstances where there is some disagreement between the parents and the child and the adolescent in this case uh, has a whole set of reasons that their interest in getting vaccination, as as you know, I'm sure adolescents have really Uh, borne the brunt of some of the implications of COVID in terms of, uh, you know, in and out of school, not being able to uh, go out with peers, meet with peers. So there, we think there is some value in cases where there is disagreement that adolescents do have the opportunity to self-consent because it has implications, COVID, Uh, has implications both for their own personal health as well as their engagement with others in their community. 
Uh, Susanna, when we look at um, how uh, opinions uh, may have changed, or at least the conversation um, that's happening in different states, even before the, the pandemic, when we look at some of the states that do permit uh, minors to make vaccine decisions without parental consent, can you talk more about those states, uh, also the District of Colum uh, Columbia, D.C., about how they were able to, to come uh, to this particular uh, law? Yeah, that's a good question. And one thing that Holly mentioned earlier that different states have different rules about consent, it's the same for this. So nine states and the District of Columbia currently have some kind of exceptions that allow at least some minors to consent, self-consent to COVID vaccines, but there are all sorts of different ways that that can happen. Some states like South Carolina, for example, allows minors to make a lot of medical decisions when they reach the age of 16. Some states, like there are two states, um, I think Oregon is one of them that doesn't actually have an age for minor self-consent in general at all. Like there isn't an age threshold. Um, some states or state-like entities like the District of Columbia just have very low age thresholds. Um, and then some other states have specific exemptions like um, in addition to mental health, substance abuse, STIs, things like that, also allow exceptions for communicable diseases um, and reportable diseases. So COVID-19 fits in that category. And then further complicated things, even some jurisdictions that are smaller than states can have exceptions to allow minors to self-consent to COVID-19 vaccines. So like San Francisco, for example, passed a law allowing minors as young as 12 to consent to their own vaccines, even though that's not a statewide regulation. So no one quick answer, but really a whole variety of ways that states get to the end result of allowing minors to self-consent. And Holly, with the example of, of San Francisco that Susanna just mentioned, you know, what were uh, some of the factors that led uh, to this municipality to come up with this, uh, this regulation? Do we know? So I, I don't have information on that, but uh, I can imagine, given what I was saying before, that the, I assume it was the city council perhaps that um, passed the rule, that they were looking at the well-being of the, their adolescent population. And given the justification that parents have in terms of making decisions on behalf of their adolescents, they decided that just because they don't want them to have <laughs> vaccinations is a appropriate reason for denying self-consent. So another way to say that would be that given the benefits to the adolescents, the potential risks of vaccination, that this should be considered routine. And if uh, someone over the age of 12 was interested in seeking vaccination, there shouldn't be any barriers to their seeking that vaccine. You're hearing Dr. Holly Taylor here on Where We Live, a member of the faculty of the Department of Bioethics, the Clinical Center at the National Institutes of Health. Her colleague here, also a fellow, Susanna McGrew, uh, both publishing a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine recently titled Adolescents, Parents, and COVID-19 Vaccination, Who Should Decide? We'd love to hear the kinds of conversations you're having as a family, 888-720-9677, conversations about the COVID-19 uh, vaccine. Uh, Holly, when we look at parental consent, is this something also in states that both parents uh, need to consent? Yeah, really good question. Um, 
the way that most of these statutes are written, it says parental consent. And so the norm would be that uh, two in a two-parent family, either parent could consent. In families where there's a divorce or multiple parents, there may be some agreement across those parents as to who is the parent. But generally, it's just uh, one parent needs to provide uh, consent. But you can imagine that on one hand, there might be um, uh, parents that don't agree in a family, or you have a, a single parent and another parent in conflict. So that makes the ability of the adolescent to make their own decision um, complicated if the requirement is that a parent needs to provide consent. Uh, to further show that this is complicated, uh, a listener reached out to me, uh, wanted to share uh, that this conversation has been very difficult uh, within her family because she's currently going through a divorce and now mm -hmm. her soon-to-be ex-husband uh, does not want their children to get the COVID vaccine. And uh, she says her children want to get vaccinated, but her lawyer has advised them not to, to for her, advise her rather to not take them to get vaccinated against her uh, husband's wishes until a judge can de decide. Uh, yeah. How do you respond to that, Holly? Well, right as you say, it's it's a, a good though unfortunate example of how complicated this can be. And and I'll just say that you know generally when we think about childhood vaccination. Um, it's something that happens well before uh, a child is an adolescent and is usually required before a child enrolls in school. So um, another way to say this is that routine childhood immunization is less complicated in the sense that there are, um, you know, if, if you don't get your child vaccinated, they can't take advantage of public school. Um, in this case, there's no state mandate or federal mandate for COVID vaccination prior to uh, going back to school or entering school. So again, many layers of complication here. Susanna, getting back to some of the conversations that teens may be having with a parent or parents, uh, a lot on their plates, especially in the last two years, a lot of, of stress, a lot of, of anxiety. And so when we think about, you know, the risk that teens face, if, if they do get the vaccine without parental consent, it can really lead to some, some tense, uh, tense moments. That's definitely true. And while Holly and I think that teens should be able to provide their own consent to COVID vaccines, that's definitely not to say that teens should just strike off from their parents and make their own decisions without consulting them. The ideal is that teens and parents talk together and come to the same page, even if they don't all, don't agree from the very beginning, or that they at least understand each other's positions. Um, we view adolescent self-consent to COVID vaccines as kind of a best solution to a bad situation, the bad situation being some kind of conflict between parents and adolescents about these vaccines. But again, we do hope that, we think that there's clear and convincing evidence that COVID vaccines are good for just about all adolescents. And the best case is that teens realize that, parents realize that, and they jointly agree to get vaccinated.
We put out a question on our social media last week about uh, this show and if uh, what viewers and listeners should think about um, whether uh, minors should be able to get this vaccine without parental consent. Anthony shared, agree, it should be as easy and over-the-counter as getting some vitamins at the drugstore. It goes on to say that uh, he shouldn't allow some parents to make bad decisions for teens that already know better. Uh, Johnny shared, absolutely nice. Absolutely not, rather. And so it shows, again, that there's definitely a divide in um, how uh, this uh, topic and uh, subject uh, should be addressed within families. Uh, uh, But Holly, before we go, I'm just wondering, this paper, again, uh, published uh, last month, I'm just wondering, you know, what has been the reaction uh, to you and Susanna's research? Um, You know, it's been positive, as well as uh, the acknowledgement that we're not really talking about this age group in in when we're talking about COVID vaccination, that there are really important things to consider when we're in the midst of a pandemic where both individual and community-wide actions can protect ourselves, our families, our communities, et cetera. So um, positive and an acknowledgement that this is a group we should be talking about. That's Dr. Holly Taylor again with the NIH's Department of Bioethics. Thank you so much, Holly, for your time today. Thank you. And also with us, Susanna McGrew, a fellow in that department. Susanna, thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up next, how are pediatricians talking about the vaccine to adolescents and their parents? What conversations have you had about the COVID-19 vaccine in your home? Are you a vaccinated adult of a child who's eligible for the COVID vaccine but hasn't received it yet? Again, we'd love to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Some teens are working to help their peers find access to vaccines. Kelly Daniel Poor founded the organization Vaxteen after coming across a post on Reddit written by a teen whose parents were against vaccinations. The poster wanted to know how they could get vaccinated without parental consent. Here's Daniel Poor speaking on NPR station KCRW. I think for a long time, the more present fear in our minds with vaccines was these supposed dangers they could have and as really propagated by this anti-vaccine movement versus we, we really weren't seeing epidemics and pandemics as often and um, we didn't really understand what vaccines had been actually preventing for us. And so I think when we're having these conversations, trying to come from a place of understanding and mutual respect and obviously having these conversations based on evidence and based in science, um, but it, the best way to be productive is to know that you're trying to come to an ultimate resolution and come together. And there is something great about a young person who knows their parents and knows what works and their ability to use that and understand and emphasize. We're talking about the conversations parents and teens are having about the COVID-19 vaccine. Most states, like Connecticut, do not allow minors to get a vaccine without parental consent. What conversations have you had in your family about COVID and the vaccine? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Now, just like last week, the FDA approved the booster for 12 to 17-year-olds. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Sharon Osfeld. Johns, Assistant Professor of Clinical Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at Yale. She sees patients at Yale New Haven Hospital in New Haven and at one of Yale's community hospital sites in New London. Uh, Sharon, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, longtime listener. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, you know, we wanted to reference uh, Kaiser Family Foundation's uh, vaccine monitor poll that found that nearly or rather 30 percent of parents surveyed would not allow their teens to be vaccinated. 18 uh, percent said they would do it only if the school mandated it. I'm wondering if you can respond to that as a pediatrician. Yeah, the information that we had from survey data leading up to the release of vaccinations for the pediatric population showed that about a third of parents would go out and get the vaccine for their children as soon as it was available. Another third would take a wait and see approach and see how other children responded and additional evidence. And that one third, as you mentioned, said that they would, under no circumstances, allow their children to receive the vaccine. So um, the numbers since vaccines have been released have um, fairly closely borne that out, and um, and I think that that's um, a challenging one third of the population to continue to have conversations with is the ones who, um, even before it was released, um, had made up their minds. Can you tell us about some of the conversations that you have with your patients and their parents? You know, are you encountering uh, parents who are are hesitant about this? particular vaccine? And why is that? Yeah. Um, so to be clear, I take care of patients in the hospital. So I'm often having conversations about vaccines at different times than with patients' primary care pediatricians. And we know from all of the evidence, including the Kaiser survey that you mentioned, that people really want to hear from their primary pediatricians. And so um, if people have specific questions about their individual case, I would advise everyone to speak with their personal pediatrician. 
the conversations that I'm having um, in the hospital often either revolve around a diagnosis of COVID in the hospital or folks being in the hospital for another reason and me having a conversation with them um, about vaccination because it's so important and because every time anyone interacts with the healthcare system right now, they should be having these conversations. Sometimes it's the first time they're um, able to speak with a medical professional. And so I'm often able to address concerns and questions. There's a lot of scary information available on the internet and other places that is not evidence-based. And so sometimes it's a relatively easy conversation to be able to answer concerns and questions. Hmm. Uh, when we think about uh, those concerns and questions, I think you're referencing misinformation that is so mm -hmm. readily available on social media. And so maybe tell us a little bit more about um, you know, the kind of conversation you're having then uh, with a particular a patient or their caregiver in the hospital. If they raise a concern with you, to you that they might uh, mm -hmm. recount something that they've heard about this vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I hear and, you know, don't want to repeat some of the, you know, um, the misinformation that's out there about vaccines. I think to um, one of the points that I am frequently making about vaccines, regardless of the concern that's expressed, is that these vaccine decisions, um, whether it's an adolescent expressing that they wish to get vaccinated themselves or an adult patient or the parents of a younger child is that these decisions to get vaccinated should be some of the easiest medical decisions there are to make because vaccines are some of the most highly studied medications that I offer ever. Um, they're offered to such a large population that they must be safe. And so, um, making those risk and benefit analyses. And as your previous guest talked about who's able to make those calculations, whether you're 14 and you're able to weigh the risks and the benefits um, or you're 18 and able to weigh the risks and the benefits, I would agree with them that because vaccines are determined to be safe for the general population before they are offered to such a large group, um, these are and should be relatively easy decisions. And as you stated, the benefits of vaccinations vastly outweigh the small risk of adverse reactions. Uh, but, you know, there were these reports earlier this, uh, well, I guess last year, rather, uh, where, um, you know, the, the CDC and others were investigating, uh, you know, very rare cases of uh, potential uh, heart conditions uh, mm -hmm. among mm -hmm. young people who've gotten the vaccine. And so can you talk about that? And, you know, while that was important uh, to highlight last year, you know, the fine today that can give people confidence that this vaccine mm -hmm. is safe for their children? Absolutely. So um, talking about myocarditis as a potential rare vaccine side effect, the first and most important thing to say is that myocarditis is a potential consequence of COVID that occurs at a much higher rate than with vaccination. We're currently in a state where there's a 100% chance that you will be exposed to this virus 
And if you are unprotected, the risk of having myocarditis, especially as a teenager, um, is many times higher than as a side effect of the vaccine. So that is one particular aspect that I have emphasized to patients who have concerns about this. The other is that the myocarditis associated with vaccines has almost universally been completely resolved afterwards and had no long-term effects for the children who have experienced it. At the beginning, we were quite concerned about those patients, often admitted them to the ICU for close monitoring, frequent laboratory tests, and ultrasound of the heart, and they have been followed up very closely. All of those children have done extremely well. And that can't be said of all of the children who have been in the ICU for COVID infection, unfortunately. You're hearing on Zoom with us Dr. Sharon Osfeld-Johns, Assistant Professor of Clinical Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at Yale, who also sees patients at Yale New Haven Hospital and also Lawrence and Memorial in New London as we talk about uh, vaccinations among minors, uh, um, the laws uh, in most states like Connecticut uh, that require uh, minors to get parental consent before they can get the COVID-19 vaccine. You can join us as well. We'd love to hear the conversations you've had or are still having about the vaccine in your family, particularly in relation to your children who are eligible uh, for the vaccine, our number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, when we look at the vaccine rate among children in Connecticut, um, doing better than, than the national average, Sharon? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, in general, our state has done better than the national average in terms of vaccinations. Um, so for our youngest patients who have become eligible for the vaccine, the 5 to 11 range, um, we're getting close to 30% um, who have um, at least received a first dose. Um, in the 12 to 17 range, um, we have about 75% who have received a first dose and um, getting close to 70% who are fully, or at this point, um, they've received two doses. Um, We're, you know, you hear me catching myself when I say fully, um, we will very soon be calling fully vaccinated three doses. I think we're getting away from calling them boosters because we know that Mm. there are just additional doses that are needed in this vaccine series in order to provide uh, optimal protection. And getting back to the questions and the conversations that teens may be having with their their parent or parents about this uh, vaccine, you know, have you encountered families with different views on vaccines? And can you tell us a little bit about um, you know how uh, those conversations went. So, absolutely. Um, I think one thing that I'll emphasize, and from my perspective as uh, someone taking care of adults and children is that the conversations that adolescents and their families are having are not all that different from conversations that other family members are having. I've taken care of, say, one spouse who's hospitalized who said to me, well, I I didn't get vaccinated because when I talked to my partner about it, we sort of decided that wasn't the best decision for us. And then I'll have a conversation with the spouse 
and the spouse says, well, we each made our independent decisions and it was up to them. And so I think that the decision to get vaccinated, whether you're an adolescent or an adult, is very much dependent on the family situation and community around you and all of the different messages that you're getting socially, um, as well as from medical professionals. And so none of these decisions are made in isolation. Um, I, I have encountered families where there's been discord. Usually um, one parent has expressed more concerns than another. And sometimes in those cases, the vaccination proceeds. Sometimes they proceed with one dose and decide to see how things go. And sometimes the objections of that one family member are so strong that they decide it's not possible. I've also heard of patients who um, have uh, adult patients who have chosen to get vaccinated and hidden that information from other family members. And I think that's the type of situation that your previous guests were talking about where, you know, there may be a small number of adolescents out there who even against the strong objections of their parents may choose to get vaccinated. I would emphasize that I think it's a small number who would actually proceed with that decision against the strong objections of their family members. And I think the answer to all of this, as your previous guest also highlighted, is just having more conversations and trying to engage more with medical professionals who are trusted and both teens and parents trust to have these conversations with. Uh, in our state, would you like to see children be able to make these their own decisions about vaccines, Sharon? Um, while I'm not a psychologist, I think the evidence that uh, your guests previously cited about um, 14 and older um, having the capacity to make risk and benefit decisions, I think that the, that would be very reasonable. And I think that including communicable diseases in sort of that general bucket of things teens are able to decide independently about would be appropriate. Uh, we heard from a listener in Farmington who wanted to share her view on this. Uh, she said to our call screener, kids aren't allowed to vote for a reason. Their brains haven't developed. Vaccines allow certain freedoms, but research also shows side effects. And so how would you respond to that, Sharon? as a medical doctor? Yeah, um, you know, I would say that the ideal situation is that adults are involved and informing teens about these decisions. Um, but I would emphasize again, the what I perceive to be the ease of decision-making around vaccines that are recommended for the general population. We can only do that safely as a medical community when we know that things are appropriate for an easy decision to be made by the general public. 
you mm-hmm. mentioned that you treat patients uh, within hospitals. Uh, we're mm-hmm. in this Omicron surge right now. Uh, when we talk about um, the the importance, the urgency of getting vaccinated, you know, some may point uh, to uh, what's been reported that uh, children uh, may not experience as severe uh, complications as an adult to COVID-19. But how do you, how, as a medical professional, you know, how do you want to address that? Uh, because it seems that you know, sometimes people will point to that as, you know, my child doesn't need to be vaccinated because if they get sick, mm-hmm. it's not going to be severe. So there are a number of, of things I would say about that. Number one, um, no children should be put at risk for having an illness that has a relative risk of hospitalization as COVID does. We are seeing higher numbers of pediatric hospitalizations in this wave with this variant. Whether that's because the denominator is bigger because we're having such a large number of infections or because this variant is more uh, able to cause that moderately severe version of illness requiring hospital stay but not we're not seeing a significant uptick in in ICU cases for pediatric patients. I don't know whether that's the case. Um, what I will say is there are a number of other reasons why vaccination is important from a social and public health perspective for each individual teenager. Number one is the ability to stay in school. So people have talked about the effect of this pandemic on children. One of the major effects has been limiting their ability to be in in in-person school. Um, With the current public health guidelines, if your child is vaccinated and has even reaching the point where an entire classroom is quarantined, the children who are vaccinated will be able to stay in school under our current guidance. And this, I, as a, mother of a public school student was able to benefit from this. My son is vaccinated and he was able to stay in school even though there were positive cases in his classroom to the level where most of the class had to be quarantined. So that's a significant benefit that may be a stronger benefit for the adolescent themselves than their parents. Additionally, from a mental health perspective, the idea for a child that they would be able to transmit the virus to vulnerable people, either within their household, their loved ones, or their classmates at school or teachers or faculty or staff, that burden from a mental health perspective, I think is really significant and needs to be considered. I wanted to fit a, a quick call from a listener, Julian Monroe's calling in. What did you want to share, Julian? Hi, good morning. Um, I'm a parent of a 13-year-old, soon to be 15-year-old. Um, they both got their boosters over the weekend, so we're very grateful mm-hmm. for that. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of my biggest concerns is actually uh, the pediatrician who we are leaving um, because he is spreading covid Um, misinformation. He's refusing to vaccinate his patients. He himself is not vaccinated. He asked people to take off masks while in the office. And so I am going through the appropriate um, process with the state to Mm. try to um, report him. 
Um, mm. But it is very difficult to actually do that. I can't get a hold of anyone to speak to. Um, and then if the state website's up to date, his um, license is also expired. And I'm just wondering, mm. hey, can you help me out here? How can I do this quicker? Because I'm a scientist. Um, so when he gave me that information and tried to talk me out of my first vaccine, which he's not my doctor, he absolutely should never have spoken to me in those terms. Um, I, you know, fact checked him in real time. Um, I worked very closely with researchers at Yale Med. I'm going to Yale this morning, actually, to work with them. Um, so I, I just get concerned. Yes, people want to reach out to their pediatrician for best advice, but what if, what if you know a pediatrician is flat out lying and has gone down a hole that you've never expected? And there's a lot of folks who don't have my training who are following his guidance. It's scary. Mm-hmm. Sharon, what did you want to? How did you want to respond to Julie? That is uh, alarming. What she just shared. Yes, Julie, I absolutely do find that very alarming. Um, I, what I think I'm happy to say is that I think that's very much outside the norm. Um, the um, available evidence in surveys of physicians receiving the vaccine, and um, I would think. Um, conveying appropriate information about it is that 96% of practicing physicians um, have been vaccinated. And that was as of essentially last year at this time when we were first uh, able to get vaccinated. Um, The fact that the license is expired is also very concerning. And um, in terms of specific guidance of how to go about um, reporting this individual. I don't have that information. I can potentially try to find it and we could be in contact, but um, I really appreciate you um, trying to go through those channels to limit this individual's impact um, in spreading this information to other patients. And Julie, we'll be sure to follow up with you uh, after the show. We'll also uh, take down your information, but uh, thank you uh, for calling. I want to thank Dr. Sharon Osfeld-Johns, who's been here with us, Assistant Professor of Clinical Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at Yale. Thank you for your perspective today. Thank you so much for having me. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we hear from a hospital system that's worked with teens to become COVID-19 ambassadors. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about the conversations teens and parents uh, are having about the COVID-19 vaccine. But what conversations are teens having with each other about the shots? And how can these conversations between peers help address vaccine hesitancy? Joining us now is a doctor at Stanford Health about a program they initiated to have teens become COVID-19 vaccine ambassadors. Dr. Asha Shah is Director of Infectious Diseases at Stanford Health and is also the hospital epidemiologist. Dr. Shah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about uh, this uh, hosting high school students uh, and how you got involved uh, with the ambassador program. Sure. So I have um, played a role in our uh, local public schools health and safety task force in terms of safe practices about COVID reopening schools. 
Um, and so being in conversation with some of the, the school nurses and, um, you know, the some of the, the, the superintendent, et cetera, we started to have conversations about vaccine hesitancy amongst adolescents. Um, and these conversations really started um, last spring and summer when the new age groups kind of became, as they became more eligible for vaccination. And while Connecticut does have um, a very high percentage of vaccinated individuals, um, there are still those, of course, who are vaccine hesitant. So we kind of put our heads together to figure out how to address vaccine hesitancy um, in, in a different way because there's so much out there about, you know, webinars and information from the local department of health and parent Zooms for schools and, you know, trying to get um, the information out to parents. But what, what kind of information is targeting children um, and targeting adolescents and making sure that their specific questions and concerns are being answered? Um, and so we kind of came up with this strategy of bringing the students to us, you know, instead of us going to the school and saying, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so, I have no relationship with you. Why would you listen to me about vaccines? Instead, we said, let's open our doors. Let's identify these high schooler. Dr. Shaw, can you hear us? To a patient who um, has COVID. And what do their lungs look like on um, on on chest X-rays? And um, how do we care for them in the ICU? What kind of personal protective equipment do we wear to take care of them? And kind of show them the flip side that if you don't get vaccinated, um, you know what are the consequences? And we thought this was effective because then they could go to their peers and have conversations with them to to say, hey, like this is real, you know, this is serious. Um, and this is how you would protect yourself. Dr. Shaw, your Zoom had broken up a little bit. Just wanted to recap. So you, there were a, a group of 10 to 15 students that, that came into the hospital and you um, explained and they were able to see kind of firsthand some of the work that's being done um, as uh, your professional at Stanford Health are treating patients. Is that right? Yeah, so we created um, three different stations for them, and we actually had our medical residents, who are young physicians, um, run the stations. So we tried to connect a younger generation of doctors with these high schoolers. So we showed them um, how to put on the personal protective equipment um, that you would wear to go take care of a COVID patient. And the most, the thing I remember the most is when they put on that N95, their eyes kind of lit up. They're like, wow, like this is, this is a serious mask, you know? And you know, I explained to them, you know, this, that's what you need when the patient has COVID. And a lot of them took them home as souvenirs. They were so fascinated by them. Um, we had another station um, where our uh, pulmonologist looked at chest X-rays and CAT scans of patients' lungs with COVID. And we said, you know, this is what it looks like for a patient who gets COVID, and this is what happens to their lungs. And then the last station was we um, we showed them, we set up the room, like an ICU room, and we had a mannequin in the room, and we showed them the process that we use to flip patients on their stomachs, because part of the management of patients with severe COVID-19 is to flip them on their stomachs. It's called proning. 
um, and that improves the lung dynamics. And so we showed them how that process happens um, with the ICU team. And so it was just like very specific aspects about COVID care to, to teach them a little bit about what we do um, in the hospital to take care of these patients. We just have about three minutes left, but again, uh, this group of teens, they weren't vaccine hesitant, but they're able to go into uh, their classrooms, their social circles, and talk about what they observed uh, to help maybe combat some of that misinformation out there, Dr. Shaw? Yeah, that was the intent. The intent was to create a relationship with them, mainly between our medical residents and the high schoolers. Um, so that we arm them with the right information to spread to their peers, because you are correct, none of them were vaccine hesitant. In fact, they were required to be vaccinated to partake in the program. Um, but, you know, they have now been able to create informational flyers based on the information that they received to spread towards, to spread around their peers. They were talking about doing a health fair. Um, and we're continuing the, the relationship with them. Um, you know, thinking about going to sporting events, um, for example, and setting up a table um, to answer questions for parents and for children and adolescents. Uh, that's good that um, you've made those inroads. And as a member of the um, Stanford Public Health Public School Health Task Force, since the inviting the teens in, do you have anecdotes from them? Have they been able? Have they had situations where they've shared uh, what they've learned uh, with peers who might be vaccine hesitant? One particular story was really um, memorable. Is that one of the the students shared her experience with her friend who was vaccine hesitant, um, and that friend actually ended up getting vaccinated. So it's the one instance that I knew that, you know, the information was shared and in a positive way, it encouraged um, one of the other students to get vaccinated. Well, this has been an interesting, uh, it sounds like it's an interesting program that is continuing uh, the efforts by uh, Stanford Health. Dr. Asha Shah, again, is Director of Infectious Diseases, also the hospital epidemiologist. Thank you for coming on to, to talk about what you're doing among teens in your community. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Test Terrible produced today's show. Cat Pastor is our technical direct director. We'll be back tomorrow.